If you've had automating your ASP.NET deployments on your to-do list, now's a great time to give Octopus Deploy a try. The Starter Edition lets you install Octopus on your own infrastructure and deploy to IIS web servers, Azure websites, and pretty much anything from Node to Kubernetes, and they just made it free for small teams. Give your team a single place to release, deploy, and operate software with Octopus Deploy. Find out more at octopus.com. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And here we are. This is the last, second to last uh, London recording. Something like that, yeah. yeah. Next you one's going to be a panel. In theory, yeah. You know, don't count your panels before the hatch. Well, you know, okay. So, we haven't recorded it yet. We're yeah. recording it after this. Yeah, but we really don't know what to expect. You never know what's going to happen <laughs> with a panel show. You might get stuck in traffic. Yeah, yeah. Well, we've got to do a little bit of running around. So that might be an impediment. And it's a party. Sometimes things work out. And sometimes we make things and the recording is mangled. Right? Yeah, that like, happens. All of those things have happened yeah. after 1600 and something shows. Right. So with any luck, next week, you'll be able to hear the ethics of AI in 2020 panel. Right. We got a great lineup as long as everything goes well. Right, but uh, this show, uh, Sandy Barr is here. We're going to be introducing her in just a minute. But first, we have this little matter of better know a framework. All right, dude, what do you got? Do you know about Code.org? I have heard of Code.org. Yeah, so it's a nonprofit, uh, and it's basically dedicating to expanding access to computer science in schools. Cool. And increasing participation by women in underrepresented minorities. Mm -hmm. So, uh, they've got some incredible stats. Um, what did I see? Like 40% of U.S. students have accounts on code.org. Wow. 20 million of their students are young women, 67 million projects created, 1 million teachers, and they're in all 50 states in the US. So they have this um Star Wars challenge where you can build a galaxy with code using uh drag and drop blocks with many languages um in starting from age 6 and up uh and then a JavaScript version and even an offline version if you don't have internet. Cool. So th it's that's it. It's a, a code.org/starwars Build yourself a little Star Wars yeah, app. Building a galaxy. Yeah. So I thought this was really cool. I didn't obviously didn't build it. I didn't have time to do that, but I watched some of the videos and I saw the, uh, the amazing, uh, statistics about this thing. And boy, if you're a teacher, I would be signing up for this in a heartbeat. Yeah. No you know, it's interesting is that, um, uh, one of the servers in the pub where we're staying in this hotel, the mm -hmm. Conrad, um, I was working in there the other night and, and he came up, he says, can I ask you a question? How hard is it to get started coding? It's like, I'm 50 years old. I'm like, doesn't matter. You yeah, know, if you like solving logic puzzles and you know, you like puzzles in general and you don't mind feeling stupid most of the time because let's that's face it, the reality. That's, yeah. That's the gig, right? <laughs> so, um, yeah, but you, you can do it. it just takes time and dedication and yeah. practice like everything else. So, this would be perfect. In fact, if I go back there tonight, I'm going to say, go to code.org. Yeah, take this out for a spin. See what you yeah. think. 
So that's what I got. Awesome. Who's talking to us today, Mr. Campbell? Gravity Comet Office Show 1659, the one we did back in October of 2019, not that long ago, with one Jennifer Wadella. Maybe you've heard of her. Uh, <laughs> talking about modernizing Angular apps. So yeah. she was really digging into the whole, hey, if you got an app that's living in the 1.x stack, what does it really take to jump over to 2.0? Now that, that and, and above, I mean, what are they at? Seven or eight now? Nine. Nine. Wow. Headless. So, uh, but also recognizing that the, now that more time has gone by, and I'm not saying wounds have healed or anything, that's not be crazy, but no, we're still damaged. Yes. <laughs> but there's better tooling. Like this, one of the things you will show is like, look, we've done more to make it easier to move from one X and certainly some sort of wizards and advisory tools. It's like this stuff will move easily. It looks like this. And eh, so you're going to fight harder with like that kind of thing. So I, I was really appreciative of that conversation. And, and one of the angles we were talking about was this, this perspective that Angular has moved sort of over the threshold, uh, into the sort of enterprise space where, the average Angular, the average enterprise architect is looking at Angular going, this, this tool is going to be around for a while. We can kind of count when you think about the time horizon of software internal enterprise, which is, you know, a decade or more. Mm-hmm. Like, do you have some hope that you're going to have people who are able to work on it, going to be able to keep functioning? And, uh, and Stephen Decoud said this. He goes, um, when you mention that enterprise architects or can recommend Angular as an application internally because it's going to be able to be used for at least 10 years and everybody seems happy with that, you need to look at the support policy and schedule from Google. Every major version of Angular only has 18 months of support, six months of primary support followed by long-term support for a year. And given the supported update paths and that you should not skip major versions, they're only guaranteeing migrating support from version to version. Mm-hmm. I can't help but think that if you choose Angular uh, as your front end, you're going to end up with continuous active development cycles mm-hmm. on Constant your Constant maintenance. Yeah, which is an interesting way to think about this is, you know, as opposed to web forms, for example, as a, for an enterprise stack where if you made it to 2.0 in 2005, mm-hmm. Essentially, that code will still compile. Yeah. You know, I'm not saying it's good. I'm saying that the way Microsoft has evolved web forms, or rather not evolved web forms, has given you an ability to have a currently secured patch version. Runs in current evergreen browsers. Right. That will run on the current browser that is, that will execute your code that was developed a decade ago. Right. And I just don't, you know, don't know that there's an equivalent. Now, I'm not as worried about the security models around Angular because this is just JavaScript inside of the browser. And as long as the browser is up to date, right. the chances this is a significant a vector of exploit is low. Yeah. Um, but you are talking about essentially legacy code if you're not within a version in within two years. When I call some of our Angular, modern Angular, not Angular JS apps legacy, my CTO looks at me with side eye. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And secretly, he's crying in the bathroom when you're not looking, right? With his right? Rails 2 app. That's right, because he's got a couple of 4.0 apps out there that <laughs> feel slick and modern because they're from three years ago. Yeah. And, but nominally, they are off the track at this point, mm. right? I mean, it is – so, I mean, I really can't argue with uh, what Stephen's saying here, and, and you got to think hard about what's acceptable. I've certainly gotten – had those conversations at places like DevInters and so forth with folks that are saying exactly that. Yeah, we're buying into the Angular stack. It looks like it's got long-term viability. 
But, you know, what, a, what a, Google's willing to support is another question entirely. Um, and whether or not they need that support is another interesting question too. I mean, it is all just JavaScript, right? And if you're going to, mo- and if you did need to, mo- say you are on four, current version is nine. It's not like it's unupgradable. All the bits are out there. The no, up- actually, version four was when upgrades started to become a lot easier. Yeah, we painful. we got through a lot of the breaking API changes and all the configuration updates, and things became a lot more smooth. And ng upgrade has come along to give those tips to help us through the difficulties. And so uh, it's the twos that are going to get their butt kicked. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's interesting. Great point. Uh, I better close this out. Hey, Stephen, thank you so much for your comment. A copy of Music to Code by is on its way to you. And if you'd like a copy of Music to Code by, write a comment on the website at .mrocks.com or on Facebook because we publish every show there. And if you comment there and I read it on the show, we'll send you a copy of Music to Code by. And definitely follow us on Twitter. He's at Rich Campbell. I'm at Carl Franklin. Send us a tweet. And if uh, you need more than 280 characters, use the force. <laughs> Okay, okay, let me. Okay, for- it's not going to be all Star Wars <laughs> references today. <laughs> Sorry, I know what that's at. Okay. Uh, anyway, uh, let me introduce Sandy formally. Sandy Barr's passion for software development has grown over the years as she's witnessed its potential for improving people's lives. Having seen that technology can be both a barrier to entry and a gateway to opportunity, Sandy has worked in her local community to provide tech education to folks who may not otherwise have access. She's held Node School and Django Girls Workshops, is an organizer for NEJS Conference, and works with organizations to create a sense of belonging for women in tech. Uh, No surprise, you probably know all about Code.org. I sure do. I've actually been an hour of code mentor. That's so (laughs) cool. It's very cool. Yeah, well, that is. thank you for all the work you're doing. This is just great stuff. We, We really do need to get the word out about how much... Uh, you know, coding for fun and profit is it's, a wonderful yeah, thing. Yeah, it's not just getting the word out, but it's taking the action and making sure that people have access to it. Yeah. Like you're going to go back and talk to that bartender. I am. And tell them about code.org. Sure. And there's a lot of places I could take them, but I mean, that, that seems like it, it, that site seems like it's really got its stuff together. It's a good entry point. Maybe yeah. he'll play it with his kids or grandkids. Right. There you go. Well, or retool his career. I mean, that's one of the interesting things. Uh, when you think about all the different ways that you can write software, like there's been this huge sort of, you know, furball around the, the Silicon Valley. And it's like, you got to look young or they don't think you're competent. Nah. Right. It's like, have you ever checked code in on a open source library, like a little GitHub or something? Good mm. code tells everybody what they really need to know about you. That's right. Right. Write some code, resume. make contributions, see if they don't value and nobody even asks your age. That's right. They don't care. It's, not, it's irrelevant. Yeah. So I had a great conversation with a cabbie uh, last night, I think it was, or the night before, I can't remember. And anyway, so we were talking about, you know, Brexit, and he's like, this is the greatest thing. But we we also just got on a a tangent towards the modernization of the economy and the jobs that aren't coming back. And, you know, he might be afraid for his job. And he thinks, "Eh, I'll just do something else. I've never not had a job. I'm like, that's a great, a, a really great uh, way Very to look optimistic. at it. Yep. So we had a little con- conversation about coders as well, because, you know, sometimes we're looked on as the people who bring about the demise of jobs because we are into automation. automation. But it's not all. That's not all we're doing. We were just talking to um, these guys who are on a project to uh, 
curb illegal fishing. Mm-hmm. Carmel Eve and uh, and, Je- and and Jesse uh, Penny. Yeah, and so their job isn't to uh, is to use machine learning to find patterns with data of that you know geographical data about boats and licenses and stuff and where boats are going, what they're doing, and satellite images and stuff. Not to put the um, the researchers that do that research out of a job, but to help them do it better and to actually get more convictions. So it's not always about automation. Isn't always about well less jobs. You know, it's about doing more. It's about doing yeah. more. And, uh, and oddly enough, always has been. You know, going, yeah. going back to the Jacobites and the automated mills. Yeah, right. Yeah. There were still mill operators and so forth, but you know, then you also had uh, the Luddites who tried to smash them because they were going to right. eliminate jobs. Fear is fear. Well, and there's no doubt that automation has put some people out of work. I mean, you know, there's more manufacturing in the United States than ever before, but it's all fewer done by machines. There's far fewer travel agents. Yeah. But there's also not none of either. That's true. And uh, there's still more productivity. Yep. yep. Speaking of productivity, reactive Let's extensions. Let's talk about reactive <laughs> extensions. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I saw that you d- were doing a talk here about Angular and Reactive together, which I thought was very cool. And if, and we've been talking about Angular routinely around sort of the state of spas and, you know, all of the other stacks that are coming up. But I'd never seen it in conjunction with Reactive. And it occurred to me, we just have not talked much about Reactive lately. Yeah, it's been a while. How do you introduce folks to Reactive extensions? What do you talk about? Um, I talk about, for me, it's a comparison to how I uh, used to work with asynchronous data in mm-hmm. JavaScript, which was Promises, um, okay. working in React yeah. and AngularJS. And uh, I like to compare them to Promises, uh, compare and contrast. And mm-hmm. um, there are a number of advantages that you get with observables. Um, observables can be made to be reused. Um, they are composable and declarative so whereas like a promise would represent something that has already started happening and you can't cancel it Mm -hmm. um you can set up uh, a declarative stream that doesn't take effect until you have a consumer to to subscribe to it and if that process is cancelable you can unsubscribe and also cancel that process right so that's kind of the general uh concept and then what I like to do is kind of take people through examples um, that they might have been doing with promises or things that they could more easily build with RxJS mm-hmm. and and show them a good tool set to get started with. Because it can be quite a broad API. And yeah, because Reactive supports uh, basically any stack you can think of. Right? Yeah, Like yeah. name a language you want to program and there's Reactive extensions for it. Mm-hmm. Listen, JavaScript supports async and await too, doesn't it now? It sure does. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, is that just sort of a wrapper around promises? As I understand. Yeah. But uh, the whole idea of declarative eventing is just so much easier. I mean, especially if you've got a lot of stuff to capture. Yeah, it's it really helps me to kind of separate those concerns of, you know, figuring out what what is supposed to happen and then someone someone else on another piece of, of your architecture figures out the when and the how. Mm. Mm-hmm. And 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 really may not even know all of the different subscribers to a given precisely. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can build consumable services that may be used in one place or multiple places in your application. Yeah, that's pretty cool. How does that mix with Angular? Is that a particular type of application? Um, no. So RxJS is built into the Angular framework. Oh, okay. um, it's something that they provide. Uh, it's not. Uh, 
it's not Angular's uh, ArcGIS does not belong to Angular again, yeah, um, but Firebase, they do pr- right? provide it as part of the framework, and they build basic things like their HTTP access around ArcGIS. So if you want to do any asynchronous work in Angular, you're most for the most part you're reaching towards ArcGIS mm-hmm. unless you just you know really don't want to. Mm. And you can build around it too. You can still use promises, but in either case, you're talking about streams of data that you want to grab certain combinations of and, and fire off additional code when you see those combinations? Exactly, yeah. It's ge- generally, you know, you think of RxJS as composing uh, streams of values that change over time. But as mm-hmm. I just mentioned, like the HTTP observables is, mm-hmm. is only a single result that completes. So promises are, you know, just as easily understood in that scenario, I sure. think. Yeah, it's very, very similar in that sense. But then I guess... The question is, do I, what do I want? Why would I want reactive over promises? Um, I think that you want reactive over promises for the composability mm-hmm. and the ability to uh, write your, your code in a declarative manner. Right. So it's better code. I mean, I, that's a judgment word. Less ifs. <laughs> yeah. But, but, for certain. But also to get the idea of reusability, like that you can definitely pick that up and move reusability that and a, a more composable component uh, based and services based architecture with mm-hmm. a good separation of concerns. And I do think it's quite readable. Yeah. Yeah. More legible to what is actually a pretty abstract concept most of the time, the concept of an observable. Absolutely. I mean, the concept of an observable is an abstract concept because an observable is nothing more than a wrapper that wraps our existing processes that we can already do, like in the Mm -hmm. browsers, for instance, with Angular. Yeah. Like you said, a bunch of ifs. Right. Could have run about a bunch of ifs, made it observable. I feel clever. Else if. Else if. <laughs> Else if. <laughs> or a bunch of nesting ifs. Oh, yes. boy, <laughs> that's more fun. gross. Yeah. Ooh, okay. Um, can you say cyclomatic complexity? <laughs> I knew I you can could. say that. <laughs> I knew you could. Uh, there's not enough Mr. Rogers in software development these days. I know. We're all a bit sadder, I think. Uh so I'm envisioning like a dashboard app built in Angular. Okay, sort cool. Sort of that spot. I mean, that's just, does that mean, that's my gut when I think about yeah. using React. I have definitely built like a read-only dashboard in Angular, you know, that right. pulls in all your data and has to mix it in different ways. Uh, one of the applications I built for PRX was our metrics application mm-hmm. so that uh, producers can look at their podcast metrics. Mm. And uh, that in- involves taking, you know, various inputs of data and composing that together and charts and breaking that out into the individual intervals and all of that. Um, I also use a library called NGRX with mm-hmm. that, which is a Redux library for Angular that uses uh, RxJS as well. And uh, that really became quite composable to me to where the concerns of, you know, a more declarative component that just showed what this component is supposed to sort of look like and what data is expecting. Um, and then you, you can consume those services, uh, separately from building those services. Right. Yeah. They, they sort of split between the two. Cause I think of, of, uh, Re, uh, re, and NGRX, that's state management. Yes, exactly. And, and, and yet sort of counter to, this is stream where I'm trying to avoid like managing state per se. Mm-hmm. I just want to let this data go through me without causing any trouble and grab only the bits that matter. Yeah. So I, the way that I built that specific application, it was just sort of a large cache that mm-hmm. I could compose from. Nice. 
And so again, you're, you're looking at streams of data and grabbing the bits that are important and organize them in a way that then they can be rendered when they're rendered. So right. if you want to put a, a, a speedometer on that dashboard and as new downloads are coming in, it's sort of moving the dial, giving mm-hmm. you sort of a visual. You've kind of built a, that's a very uncoupled way to build that. Precisely. So you're, you're monitor, you're, you're streaming that log. You're grabbing the latest value that of all the things that come through that log that might affect that total download number. And as we were discussing maintenance earlier, yeah. I feel like having that composable style architecture really assists you when it comes to maintenance because you've got this strict right. separation of concerns and then your problems are very isolated. Yeah, for sure. If you were dealing that with promises, you'd probably put the promise associated with the tag that renders that speedometer yes. to a hook to the feed. I'll be honest mm. with you, that's sort of how I started to build Angular applications and sure. I'm very embarrassed about that code base. <laughs> well, it, you know what? It'll demo fine. And, she, the, and the first couple of things hey, are fine. it publishes our podcast. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. It's usually doing that asynchronous operations and stashing things into your state or your cache that right. is the hard part of the front end. Yeah. And so the, the fact that you think about that as its own workflow, its own chunk of code, mm-hmm. and then your UI is simply reacting to values available in state. Precisely. Well, I'm good. Let's get a beer. Like, I'm delighted. Hey, like, that's that. such good thinking, right? <laughs> Everyone's sold. But, yeah, you take some minute to step back and think that way. Like most of the time we're thinking, I have some gauges on a dashboard. They need data sources, you know, go as opposed to here are an array of, of values that would be useful to render in a variety of ways. Let's just position all the values and then we can think about how we visualize them. Right. <laughs> yeah. It makes things a whole lot cleaner for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and. And less afraid to modify that app. You yeah. create new visualization. Yeah, it's so much less dangerous because if you're not changing your store, your state, and you're just building out of your existing your your existing store state by composing and slicing and dicing that data mm-hmm. back together, I mean the the only change that you're making is isolated in your new code. Yeah. Yeah. So it's very tolerant to that. If you, you think you'd rather just have a tabular set of values, we can make an, a, a UI for that, right? Like you could do that. It's yours. We can let people make bad choices and not impair your software. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's still peer review. <laughs> there is that. Yeah. I guess that's sort of the reality of all of those things. Should we walk another scenario? I like that one. That one makes me smile, but, uh, Hey, and you and you threw NGRX, which I'll include a link to, because clearly, you know, Redux is its own bit of coolness. Oh, absolutely. But, but Redux thinking in the context of streaming is even more coolness. It all adds up. Yeah, I don't have well, and, and plus, I'm not pre-filtering data from somewhere else. Like I, I could easily have built this where I have some other processes going to the logs and staging data in a database or in some kind of JSON. Use store. your side effects for that, you know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, this is probably this is kind of a tidier way to go about it. So, what's the number one mistake people make when going from a, an event-driven model to a reactive model? 
Um, I think the number one mistake I've seen people make when they first encounter observables is um, higher order observables, which is um, observable of observable streams. Observables and so observable. what, what you, you end up with, with it then is nested subscriptions, which looks quite a bit like callback hell and the, ne the nested ifs that we were discussing earlier. Right, right. And so RxJS provides a number of higher order operators to deal with this scenario. But mm -hmm. ArcGIS provides almost 80 or so operators. So learning all of this stuff when you're first encountering it, when honestly the Angular tutorial doesn't cover observables all that well, wow. okay. because it's, you know, it's a separate. That's not what they do. It, yeah. Right. Right. It is built into the framework, but it is, it is a separate situation. Mm -hmm. So I, yeah, honestly, I think the biggest mistake is seeing nested subscriptions and not really quite understanding how to deal with those higher order observables. Mm, right. Yeah, and and, and you, how do you deal with them? With the flattening operators like switch map, merge map, concat map. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so you can flatten those streams of observables of, of observables mm -hmm. into a plane observable. You can even apply projections to them. And the thing about all of the higher order operators is they all function a little bit differently. That's why there's mm. quite a few of them. There's um, creation operators that allow you to take multiple observable streams and compose them together, like concatting them together. I mean, there's your English mm -hmm. words. They mean concat one after another right. or merge, put everything together in a stream at once. Um, switching, if you kind of have to think about, it means we're only subscribed to one at a time. And if another one comes along, it takes precedence. So the way, yeah, the way that you deal with them is uh, with your either your creation, higher order operators and joining those observables together or your pipeable uh, operators like the switch map. So, um, so when you have multiple observables, you're use, usually because you're having multiple streams of data coming in from different places, right? And then when you, when you merge them and flatten them, does the significance of any one of those streams go away? I mean, how, how do you interpret multiple streams in a flat? Okay. So it, I mean, it, it depends if you want to differentiate between those. So there's mm. uh, different operators provided that, um, return data in such a way that um, would maybe take multiple streams and give you the result when both of them has emitted. And one of those operators is like combined latest, and that allows mm. you to create a new observable out of multiple observables. Yeah. And then when, when you get that output observable, you get an array of your output and an, another one is like with latest from is a pipeable operator that allows only your leading stream to update the output, but mm. it'll grab the latest value from your inner observable and, and combine that in the array in your output. But when you're merging, um, generally those streams are similar sources of data and you want to just get it together as they've come out in the same time. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, I, I can see why that would be challenging, you know, if for somebody who's it. not used to if it. If you don't know what you want, how are right. you going to know what to find in, in yeah. these operators, right? Sure. And yeah. And, and that's and why it, there's also uh, diagrams provided. Um, mar marble diagrams are quite helpful for, mm -hmm. I, I mean, some people bounce very hard off the marble diagrams, but you kind of have to know what you're looking at first and then you can it gives you kind of a visual on what your output looks like so you don't have to kind of think about what what it is that you're looking for beforehand you just see like that's yeah that's sort of the thing that i'm trying to do right yeah yeah 
I'm going to interrupt for one moment for this very important message. You know, client-side Blazor should be baked by May, according to Microsoft. Now's the time to jump into server-side Blazor so you'll be ready. Spend an entire day with me building a real app, complete with components, API controllers, authentication and authorization, JavaScript, Interop, and SignalR. The next classes are this Monday, December 16th, and again on Friday, January 3rd. If you can't make either of those dates but still want to learn, you can purchase the materials, which guide you step-by-step with text, screenshots, and code that you can copy and paste. You also get an eight-hour screen video from the last workshop, so you can follow along at your own pace. Go to blazer.appvnext.com and get the goods. Hey, Carl and Richard here. We'd like to tell you all about the upcoming conferences NDC is hosting all around the world. NDC DevOps Oslo will be March 11 to 13. Go to ndcdevops.com to register. NDC Copenhagen is April 1st through 3rd. Go to ndccopenhagen.com to register. NDC Porto will be April 21st through the 24th. So go to ndcporto.com to register. And check out the full lineup of conferences at ndcconferences.com. And we're back. This is Richard Campbell. That's Carl Franklin. Yo. It's .NET Rocks. We're here at NDC London, right by Westminster Abbey. Yeah. And we're talking to Sandy Barr, talking a little bit about Angular and reactive extensions and some of the other libraries. For It's really, it's not actually about libraries. This is a pattern of it development. Is, yeah. Managing It's streams. a stream-based architectural yeah. pattern. Thinking about just think working with streams being, I have lots of data coming through. I don't want to catch it all. I want to define some observables. When you see this pattern of information in this stream, let me know. Right. right. Raise an event. Like the if I've meeting. subscribed, if otherwise I've subscribed. nothing else will happen. Nothing happens, <laughs> right? And, and I think part of what I've been impressed with with this architecture is its tolerance to volume. That more and more and more data and the system doesn't slow down. And its tolerance to, to modification that you can add new stuff. And you don't break what came before it for mm-hmm. the most part. I mean, I don't, do you see places where people go wrong with this, with the streaming patterns? Um, I think it's just lack of experience mm-hmm. with the, you know, when people have gone wrong, maybe lack of guidance as well. That's why, that's why I speak about it because sure, yeah. I struggled initially. And so I'm sharing my pain and embarrassment so that others don't have to uh, have quite the struggle path. You've done something horrible with streams, haven't you? Yeah. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> Here to talk about that, are we? Oh, no, no. <laughs> oh but you know, ethically, it was fine. Yeah, okay, so <laughs> maybe a, not my proudest moment. It, yeah, but, you know, this defeating the stream by by re- retaining data unnecessary, like there's all kinds of oh, littering up your components with state variables and yeah. subscribing in your components and not using the async pipe and <laughs> yes. anti patterns abound yeah. in every technology. Yeah, but. Let's think about something simple like I'm going to use your scenario around the podcast downloads. Okay. An accumulator. It's not a dirt simple, right? Because you are not seeing the total number of downloads. You're seeing each time a download goes by. Right. Mm. How do you do accumulators right? 
Okay. Um, well, the accumulator for that system is in the back end. I right. mean, because, of course, we've got to process all the logs and we've got to dedupe all that data. And mm-hmm. We've got to make sure that they've read a certain number of Especially bytes. Especially you're talking about podcasts. Right. It, mm-hmm. It's not like there's just a download. It's way worse <laughs> right. than that. Yeah. And so, they all come in once. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we save all of those deduped downloads then in BigQuery and we built an Elixir API on top of that nice. that allows us to get at uh, the real-time data um, hourly, daily, weekly, or monthly format. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, we take that data, load it up into the front end, and then build out our dashboards, charts, and tables. Right. Mm-hmm. So there is a staging point for that data. You have an accumulation well before you're talking to the I mean, stream. you can't count a download as soon as somebody clicks your podcast. That's I'm sorry. Are you looking for accurate information here? Like, <laughs> nobody, nothing good I mean, comes of that, Sandy. We are <laughs> attempting to be IAB2O compliant. And that's so, an interesting yes. side of this. What right? is There I, are standards IAB. to counting. What is that? NIAB? The, the IAB yeah. is the um, international, I can't remember the acronym. Um, but it's a standards body. It's a standards body that determines um, what, how you can um, say that ads have been right. had impressions Internet on Internet Advertising Bureau. Thank ah, you. Yes. I should probably know that as a podcaster. Take all the fun out of it, really. <laughs> I just like to talk. <laughs> that should be your job. Let us hosts figure yeah, out right. the hard part and the privacy and all of that. It is a classic separation of concerns is to get to an IAB valid number is a separate task from what you might stream it to, what you might render it on. Like those are all, you know, should be a separation. Right, right. I mean, you all want to worry about your content. We want to make sure that you're meeting the standards mm-hmm. and yeah. that you're able to sell ads based on accurate metrics. Right. Reasonable and price, you know, prices reflective of the value mm-hmm. of, uh, of what's actually happened. Sandy. What the heck's a subject? What subject are we talking about now? A behavior subject? A replay subject? What? <laughs> RxJS subject. An RxJS subject yes. is um, similar to an observable, but a subject, the difference is that it has state, meaning that it um, keeps a list of its subscribers, and often it will keep um, some of the values that have been streamed through that subject. Hmm. And it's sort of like an, a, a traditional event bus. In like that a you context can, almost. You can subscribe to it like an observable, but you can also push or next values into that subject. Mm-hmm. So way that I frequently use subjects in the front end, say, for example, when I'm not using an NGRX store is to build an observable data service or store for my application to, again, separate my concerns of how that data is composed to where that data is used. Right. So, yeah, it's a special case observer. Because observers are very stateless. It's just like, exactly. oh, this thing you asked me about, it happened. It, yeah, it's Here just a function that wraps some other process. And as it doesn't an observer. remember anything. It doesn't think about anything. It invokes multiple times if necessary. Like, it's, in some ways, it's like it's the lightest weight way to precisely grab a piece of data mm-hmm. based on what you need. Mm-hmm. Where a subject seems a little heavier. A subject is a little bit heavier. Yeah, yeah it's mm-hmm. a heavy topic. But in- <laughs> But where you have something more important, and I'm just I'm racking my brain for an example based on the scenario we've painted so far, where you use a subject over an observable. 
Okay. Um, so where I frequently use a subject is when you've got, you know, data to compose that is, you know, clearly it's asynchronous. Mm -hmm. Um, we're living in the future here. So you've got to get your, your data from the back end, but your components uh, asynchronously will then subscribe themselves to a store when they're initialized. Mm -hmm. And you don't want to miss that data if your store has been initialized. So that's where you would use a subject to hold your state. Right. It's perfectly clear to me. <laughs> hey, let's let's get even more complex with throwing something like a multicasted observable. Ooh, okay. Fancy. So typically observables are not multicast, they're unicast. So meaning meaning that this is also referred to in observable land as hot versus cold, which doesn't explain it any better to me. <laughs> um, a All hot I can think of is pastrami right now. <laughs> so Are I don't you know hungry? Why. I don't know why. <laughs> a hot observable is multicast, meaning that multiple consumers can subscribe to that data okay. and they use the same source of data. But a cold okay. or a unicast by default observable um, will wrap the creation of that producer and then each consumer gets a unique instance of the producer and that is the default wow. way that observables are used it's subjects like are multicast singleton. however though and there are several operators provided by rxjs that can take a plain observable cold observable and make it hot by hmm. creating a subject internally like we've got share share replay publish um, several of those operators that allow you to then share the result with multiple consumers. And that's frequently where we're leaning towards those subjects because we want to make cold observables hot and use that data then in multiple parts of our application so we can subscribe to the same source in multiple places. It's almost, it almost reminds me of a singleton, you know, where you just have one, one instance of an object that is shared by all the different consumers of it. Not the same, but I mean, that's, that's what pretty similar concept. Yeah. 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 It's all very pattern based. Yep. You're going to have that situation. It makes sense to be able to do that as well. I mean, I would, I would tend to think towards you kind of want to stay with hot, even though cold is the default. I mean, things get a little more complex yeah. when you have hot observables. And if you are just using your cold observables pretty carefully and say you're just listening for the duration mm. of an HTTP request, right. um, and then you're showing that data in mm. a composable manner, you can just use plain cold observables. Mm -hmm. But if you need to share that, you can pipe it through share, share replay, and you've got yourself a hot observable. Yeah. And I, and I guess that's part of the point. It's like I can see you started with a cold observable and the initial build with one you know particular event you're trying to capture and behave with. And then as the software evolved and there were more things involved, the hot made more sense. Yeah. But you didn't break anything. You, yeah. just, you just updated it. You just updated it. You added in more complexity, though. Yeah. So where, whereas if you could have just used cold or unicast, then maybe it'd start there, like yeah. you said. Yeah. Start, you're probably going to start with the unicast observable most of the time mm -hmm. yeah. and then find when you need to go multicast. Mm. Um. I know JavaScript applications aren't so testable to begin with, but uh, how does adding reactive to the mix affect testing? 
I think that it also, because of the composability of it and the separation of concerns, makes testing a lot easier. Hmm. Um, when you're testing your ArcGIS streams, um, there is a Jasmine Marbles testing library hmm. that can help you set up these streams and validate that they're processing things in the right manner. Hmm. Um, but then when it comes to doing your component testing, your unit testing of your components, you can just set up a fake service that has mock data and it does doesn't matter where any of that came from because to the component it doesn't matter it just takes sure. inputs and has outputs and, right. and shows certain data on the screen yeah i mean that makes a lot of sense there's not uh, not so many moving parts yeah you don't have to mock up the state of the world in order to unit test a, a component yeah mm. that's right yeah, it's these are architectures that lend themselves to testing because they're already fairly compartmentalized. And frequently, you're just using pure functions, which, as we know, are also more easy to test. Right, yeah. It's just a, you're already doing the hard part by architecting this way. The byproduct of that is it's Precisely. relatively testable. Mm-hmm. If, and if it's not, I would look at what you did. <laughs> <laughs> if your unit test is too complicated, you probably need to break things yeah, apart. Yeah, you need to think about the architecture here. Is there anything you wish... It, RxJS did better? I wish that there were more introductory um, tutorials on RxJS. It does seem like, like a pretty hill, high hill I, I mean, that's why I'm out here talking about it. Yeah. I wish it were easier for people to ramp up. I wish that people didn't bounce so hard off of it because once hmm. you start thinking in the stream-based architecture, once you've made that paradigm shift, I feel very happy with where I am. But it took me a lot of trial and error to get here. Sure. So mm. one of the things um, that they've started doing, I'm speaking at a conference in March here in London. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's called ArxJS Live. I'm mm. um, starting to develop more training, talking about this more on different levels so that we do, we are making it more accessible for folks. Why Angular? Wait. Would any of the client-side libraries work well? Is it because yeah. Angular already has RxJS? Like, is there yeah, any reason so a Vue or React wouldn't be a big deal? I would even uh, lean towards using RxJS with Vue. It's got similar to Angular's async pipe. Um, Vue is easily integrated with RxJS as well. Mm-hmm. And I I think of Vue as a fairly similar, you know, all all coming out of the same box framework. Um, but I've even heard people who they've transitioned into React from y- using uh, RxJS and Angular or other, you know, standalone right. or other frameworks, and they really miss the composability of yeah. RxJS. Right. So it is a nice model. But, you know, you said right off the bat that RxJS is living in Angular anyway. Like mm-hmm. it's just, They've thought reactively all along in the way that, that uh, Angular works where I'd be more concerned. I, I mean, and Vue especially, that sort of component approach could be highly resistant. I don't know that it is. Mm-hmm. But just like, is it going to function near as well? I, I would think so. I don't personally have any experience sure, using right. it with Vue. It's just kind of looking into comparing uh, this with other frameworks. Like you could use this with a Vuex store mm-hmm. and uh, integrate it into your view templates and things like that. Yeah, you would think. That I, I, don't, I don't see a problem with that. Oh, look, Rx integration for Vue. So somebody's mm. made a library. <laughs> you know, there are tools for this. And uh, and it's well supported. It's been, it's, I don't know, has been, has been updated in a while, but... And there's a bunch of contributors and some pull requests. So it looks like a working project. That's always my instinct. It's like, well, if it's a good idea, there must be software already. Right. Let's, let's go see how it's doing. Yeah. So, yeah. You know, oh, the only, yeah, the only, uh, 
open requests right now are for upgrades to current versions of other libraries. So it's good news. They're on top of their issues. It means they're, yeah, they're basically on top of it within the week kind of thing. Don't look so. at our backlogs. I'm, uh, I'm here today, so I'm not yeah, on top of not, my issues. Deal with that. But it's funny how, <laughs> how normal it's been for us to be able to assess an open source project. Just yeah. go, is this alive? Right. Is this healthy? That is so true, though. Yeah. Anytime, and you always have to do this in the JavaScript world because you're always looking at using some library over another, especially with React. When I used to work in React primarily, mm-hmm. you know, it was, it felt like the Wild West. And so People you. People making libraries every month and then shooting them like yeah, by the end of the month, right? You click through to these repos and how long have they been alive? Are they still maintained? Who are the maintainers? Yeah. Are they responsive on issues? Yeah. You know, what's, what's yeah. going on there? What when, is, yeah, when was your last version rolled like? out? What are you supporting? Absolutely. That's mm-hmm. open source uh, can be the Wild West, but also it's open. So if you look yeah. hard enough, you it can It does feel like a on. skill you simply need to cultivate today is that you should be comfortable assessing these projects fairly quickly. As a JavaScript developer, 100%. Yeah. Before, before you commit. Before he's like, all right, we're going to make a bet on this. <laughs> Thoughts like it's just open source and everything's going to be fine. Because right. that's not the truth. That is not the truth. I mean, well, we have the source code. I mean, we don't understand the source code, but we have it. <laughs> you can look up most of our source code on PRX, but that doesn't mean you're gonna you're gonna steal our <laughs> secret <laughs> sauce. <laughs> yeah, right. uh, not all source code is shiny either, right? It's like yes, all applications have ugliness in it. You just need to know where yours is, <laughs> and that's the thing you check in. Okay, knowyouregly.com. <laughs> Is there anything left to, uh, have we covered all the bases or is there anything left to, to dig up? I think we've covered some good bases on yeah, Angular right. and RxJS. We've made a good case. So what's next for you? What's next for me today? Well, this evening we're going to Magic Mike the Musical. Oh, so very good. I fun. hate to miss the party, but, but you yeah, know, we've had these London. tickets for a minute. Yeah. Um, next up for me is I will uh, be going back to work and taking care of some of that backlog. Uh, we're developing a forecasting to help improve in our ad sales and projections at PRX. Mm. Um, we partner with a lot of our producers and and, and partners to help them sell their ads and determine um, what their projections will look like. Mm-hmm. So that's the current work that we're doing right now. That's an interesting job. It's cool. Yeah, it's very so cool. much for talking to us about this. It's very interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you very much. And we will see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a